You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning and welcome to all of you as you come into this Zoom worship this morning. I'm Reverend Justin Schroeder, one of the ministers at First Universalist Church. It is really good to be with you. What a week it has been. Exhaustion and anxiety, tentative hope, some joy, some relief, all of it. What a week, what a time, what a year, what a last four years, what a life we are living. One thing I can tell you is this this morning. Since I started my ministry with First Universalist in 2009, we've lived through three presidential elections together, 2012, 2016, and this one, 2020. And each time amidst so much not knowing and so much uncertainty, there have been things that we do know. There have been things that have been certain. There have been anchors that have held us and this faith community is one of them. We know that no matter who is elected president, we will continue to worship together. We will continue to welcome and affirm and protect the light in each human heart. We will continue to listen deeply to where love is calling us next in our lives. And with humility, courage, and compassion, we will act to create a more just world. This is who we are as a faith community. This is the path we move on together. And we do all of this as a multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational community, really committed to unpacking and dismantling the harmful legacy of white supremacy culture, of uprooting the habits and practices of white supremacy culture. Those are our unshakable values. Those are the things that hold and guide us no matter what is happening in the world around us. So welcome to each and every one of you this morning. It's so good to see you all saying hello in the chat from different parts of the Twin Cities, from all over all over this country, and some of you from around the world. So really glad to be with you. Whew. Friends, let's take a big breath together. Just a big inhale and a big exhale. Sometimes it's just good to remember to exhale to let our bodies settle into this time and place together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, I'm going to tell a creation story from the Anishinaabe culture. And the story begins many, 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 many years ago, early in the morning, when the sun was rising into the sky and it got too close to the earth and got entangled in some trees. And as what should have been the dawn was approaching, the animals woke up and they looked around and they saw that it was still dark. So they went back to sleep. And the animals that enjoyed doing their thing in the night, the hunting and the who were the night dwellers, they thought, oh, a little more time for me. And eventually though, the animals realized that the darkness was going on much longer than it should. And so they called themselves together for a council. And the eagle said to all of them, the sun has gone missing. And the bear said to all the animals, we have to find it. 
So the animals spread out across the earth in search of the sun. And they looked in the caves and they looked in the oceans. They lifted up rocks looking for the sun, but they couldn't find the sun. And a little brown squirrel thought, hmm, maybe the sun is stuck in the trees. And so the squirrel climbed to the tallest tree and began to hop from treetop to treetop in search of the sun. Well, eventually off in the distance, the little squirrel could see the light of the sun and thought, oh, there it is. And the, it scampered across the treetops until it got to where the sun was. And the sun said to the little squirrel, help me, help me, I'm stuck. And the squirrel said, I'm on it. And the squirrel went to chewing at all of the little branches that the sun was entangled in. But the sun, of course, is very, very hot and very, very bright. And the more that the squirrel freed the sun, the brighter and the hotter it got until eventually the squirrel said, oh, my, my fur is starting to burn. I, I have to stop now. And the sun looked down and said, little brother squirrel, I need you, please don't stop now. And so the squirrel kept on with its little squirrel work, chewing at all the little branches and getting the sun more and more free from the treetops. But of course, as the sun got more and more free, it got hotter and hotter. And so the squirrel said, oh no, my tail is burning off. It's burning off, I have to stop now. And the sun said, oh, please don't stop now. You're doing such a good job and you're helping me so much. Please just keep going. I'm I'm almost free. I promise I'm almost free. And so the squirrel kept nibbling at those tree branches until he, he got so close to the sun that the sun was so bright that it burned out the squirrel's eyesight. And then the squirrel said, oh no, I'm blind. I can't go any further. And the sun said, it, we're, I'm almost free. Just a little bit more. Please, please don't stop now. And so the squirrel kept working, chewing at those branches until eventually it chewed through the last branch that was holding the sun back. And the sun burst up into the sky and dawn spread across the whole earth and all of the animals rejoiced. All of the animals, except for the squirrel. The squirrel was hanging from one branch in that tree. Its fur had been completely burned away and its skin had spread to be black and leathery and taut across its bones. Its tail had completely burned off and it was blind. And the sun looked down at the squirrel and said, little brother squirrel, you did so much to help us all. Is there anything that you've always wanted? And the squirrel said, well, I've always wanted to fly. And the sun said, okay. And the sun granted the squirrel the ability to fly. The sun said, you'll be able to fly better than all of the birds. You won't be able to, to be out in the day anymore because your eyes have become so sensitive and blind, but now the nighttime will be your domain and you will wake up when I rise and you will enjoy your time when I go down at the end of the day. And so the sun made the squirrel into the first of all the bats. So what we learn from this story is that our work for justice, our work to untangle the mess that humans have created for ourselves over centuries and centuries, that that is really, really hard work. And that that work will require a lot of sacrifice and that work will transform us in ways that we may not like at first, 
but that will give us new skills and that will make us better and more loving and more able to be with one another. And because that work is so important for the rest of the world, because that work makes our world inhabitable by making it a more loving place, by making it a more equitable place, that worth is worth it. The work is worth it. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Franco. Arif, I so appreciate your slowing down and letting us hold both deep inhales and exhales and just recognizing the folks of color that organized, that brought us to this moment. Amy, your story just speaks piercingly to this moment. Thank you. So friends, the question on my heart this morning is what is true right now? What is true in this moment? And I'm finding that that can be such a helpful question to sort of name what is true in this moment for myself, for perhaps many of us. And I know I can't speak for all of us in this time, but amidst some of the joy and relief that exists because the country has elected decency and kindness and truth and science and has honestly begun to name the deeper realities of this complicated land we live on. What is true is that there is joy and elation for so many of us. And what is also true in this moment is that there is grief and anguish about this election cycle. There is deep sorrow about the deception and violence and denial and hate and racism and turmoil that has been a daily occurrence for the past three and a half, almost four years. This daily deluge of, of violence and misogyny and hate that has landed on our bodies, that has landed on the body of this country. So we come into this place holding all of that, the joy and elation, but also the exhaustion, the bone weariness, the tiredness. As I was talking with my colleague, uh, a Lutheran pastor, but who is with us, and maybe you've seen her in, in worship before with this um, colleague of mine, Stephanie Voss, about this particular Sunday and what we might preach on and how we were thinking about framing what is happening in our country and the world right now. As we were talking, we kept returning to what we were noticing in our bodies, noticing what was happening in them, noticing the gestures that we were using as we were just talking on Friday morning, just a couple of days ago. And there were a few gestures that we kept doing as we talked with one another. One of the gestures I found myself and actually Stephanie too, was this gesture that reflected some of the tightness, the constriction, the sadness the grief that I was feeling in my body. It was this sort of folding over, kind of curling inward, almost a collapse of sorts. And that is one of the places I've been this week, one of the places I've been over these years. That place of tight curling in, trying to just in some ways make it through this time. And as a white man, 
my sense of making it through is markedly different than what it means to make it through for people of color or trans people or folks who experience that assault in a deeper and different way. But on Tuesday night, I will tell you, I was imagining that there might be this sweeping, and maybe many of us were imagining that there would be this sweeping repudiation of the dysfunction and the norm shattering and the awful behavior that has marked these past four years. But as this failed to materialize, and I know there were mail-in ballots and different process, but still I had imagined something dramatic and sweeping, this repudiation. And I realized Tuesday night and then into Wednesday that my social location and in conversations with others, I realized my social location, my middle-class, white, able-bodied, heterosexual male identity was deeply shaping this repudiation fantasy that I held. My social location, that particular place I occupy in the world, my lack of deep experience with the other Americas that exist, led me to believe that after four years, this country would overwhelmingly say enough, that these last four years were somehow just a little blip in our history and aberration. But friends, what I, what I know, what I should have remembered and held closer to my heart is that slavery and land theft and genocide and Jim Crow and stop and frisk in the past four years and so much more, they are not blips in our country. They are connected to the taproot of this country. And I imagine that those of you in different social locations, particularly folks of color and other folks at the margins are far less surprised by this election. So in our Wednesday service, in the Wednesday service I led, my body was in that folded over position, psychically, spiritually. We lamented that 2016 wasn't a fluke or a mistake or anomaly. And that in 2020, millions and millions of people once again cast their vote for white supremacy. Now, I know many of you will, will tell me, and I know there's a lot of reasons people cast their vote that way, but the heart of it is that people were able to say somehow this is okay, this white supremacy, this framing of who is in and who is out, what this country is and what it is not, and we will vote for that. On Wednesday, we lamented the damage done to our public institutions. We lamented the harm done to public servants and scientists. We lamented the public harassment, the verbal abuse and violence done against women and particularly women of color by the president. We lamented that so many other adults, the ones who could have held the president accountable failed again and again and fail still. On Wednesday, we lamented and I think many of us are still lamenting. And, and, and today we have reason for hope. And that's this gesture, up and back and reaching. You can imagine, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but you can imagine in those final seconds of a game when your team wins, you move from this kind of place of terror or wonder to elation, hands up, eyes to the sky and the heavens. And that gesture kept happening as well as Stephanie and I were talking. This movement, this looking up to the, to the sky, pulling away from collapse and catching a glimpse 
of something we can scarcely imagine. And so friends, what is true is that there is also reason for hope today. There is reason for hope today and we need that. We need to feel joy, to dance in the streets, to shout and leap and feel that lift under our wings. There is reason for hope. A woman, a black Indian American woman will occupy the White House as vice president in January. Given how long it has taken to reach this point, this jubilation, this excitement, this joy, this reaching toward heavens, it is an appropriate response. And what I also am knowing to be true and more and more true in this time is that what's next for us as a faith community isn't something that has changed one bit. The election hasn't changed our core fundamental commitment as a community of faith. Our work before the election, our work after the election, it is the work of building beloved community, of building a multiracial, multicultural, multi-generational community and building that community in ever-expanding circles all around us. That hasn't changed. That's the thread we follow. That is the vision we hold tight to. Now, I knew for this Sunday that we would be in this moment potentially of deep uncertainty, of not knowing where we stood as a country, who had won the election. And so several weeks ago, I reached out to members of our congregation, members of this multicultural, multi-generational, multi-racial congregation we're a part of, and I invited them into conversation with me and with one another, asking them the question, what values and practices and vision and hope will hold you and anchor you on November 8th, regardless of who is elected. And it was a remarkable and a beautiful conversation. And it offered a middle way between the, the collapse of despair and sort of depression and that inward falling down space, which is survival in so many times and needed in so many ways. It offered this middle way between permanent collapse and kind of unmitigated you know, pie in the sky, dreaming and blind optimism and hope. And so I wanna share this video with you. It was a 90 minute conversation that we shrunk down to about six minutes, but there is some beauty here. Let's listen to this video and see what they had to say with us. One of the benefits of being old, I'm 77 years old. One of the benefits is in my lifetime, I have seen our language expand to include everybody, however any human person might be described. There is language that I never heard when I was 19. Having a conversation with a friend online or through social media, and um, we, had, we have different beliefs. And I kind of got to the point where I was getting angry, but then I, I just thought like, I really like this guy. And, um, and then I was just like, we're not our ideas. <laughs> we're, we're precious people and we have our essence, and that's what matters. I've got about three or four friends where there is a diametrically different view of the world. It's more than just politics. And um, I'm making really an effort to keep 
that relationship alive. Um, that's the one thing I can do. And uh, I think that's important. Every day we have an election in our heart. We get put a lot of energy around these general elections and even state and local elections sometimes get more energy than the election we have in our heart every day. And I remember feeling a commitment and it's become a spiritual practice of how do I vote with my dollars? How do I vote with my feet and where I go and where I choose to put my white cisgendered body? I'm a big believer in ancestry worship and they're a really important part of uh, my higher power. Uh, I have an altar to them actually right behind me over here. Um, so really sort of honoring them and pouring libations to them and those kinds of things is really, really important to me. Um, and so the, the sort of strength comes from the fact that they were so strong and that they went through so much more difficulty than anything that I go through today and that I have the privilege that I have and can live the life that, I can, that I'm living uh, because of them. Most people in my family only were able to vote um, just around the time that I was born um, in the late 60s. I'll be honest, I have a lot of angst about the future. <clears throat> um, I think the hope that I can find is that it can be better than it is today. I never thought that I would have the right to marry. That was just completely far out to me. Like it just never even occurred to me, like legally, like I knew I could get married if I wanted to um, because I believe it's a spiritual thing, but I never thought that would happen and it did. And so I think for me right now, it's really important to remember those victories because it'd be really easy for me to forget all of that. I'm thinking that we're going to be living through a lot of uncertainty, but I do think the big secret to moving forward is, is, is going through the uncertainty. So you don't lose yourself. I don't want to lose myself and I want to be there in the uncertainty and I don't want to be frightened and know that I am still me no matter what happens and I can still give love no matter what happens. When I feel that anger rising up, I know it's been driven by fear. I've learned that over the years. So then I ask myself the next question. Why am I afraid? I think back to an idea, um, John Lewis during the civil rights era, um, when he was marching on that bridge and was beat by the white officer, he had so internalized this idea of loving one another that he still had love for the man who cracked his skull. And I think if we're ever to truly sort of alleviate these causes of a lot of the hatred that we see, preliminarily, you have to be able to acknowledge that and still love every single one of those people. And I don't think that's easy. <laughs> I definitely don't always do that myself, but I don't think you get to somewhere better unless you can do that as a first step. One of the duties after this election is to really look, and I think it's something that we try and do a lot is really genuinely listen to people. Cause I think if you can do that sincerely, then it becomes not as much winning or losing, but it's 
all of us move somewhere together and you can you then start to build on this idea that progress is not to the detriment of other people but progress can be progress for all of us as americans it's okay to to kind of also echo what carolyn was saying there's a lot of fear in the uncertainty and so hello fear thank you for being here today <laughs> You're welcome. You know, come sit next to me is kind of what I is the practice right now. And so maybe I'm feeling flanked by fear and hope. And I just get to be right in the middle of that. I'm so grateful. So grateful for the wisdom and the insight of these congregants who um, shared some perspectives with us, reflections on how we might move forward. And like I said, this was a video, kind of a conversation we did a few weeks before the election, trying to hold on to a bigger story than the particular outcome, trying to land on the values that can guide us and hold us uh, regardless of what happened in the, in the election. And so I'm just grateful for their, their insight and their wisdom. And I'm reminded again that after the election of 2016, writer and activist Adrian Marie Brown said, things aren't getting worse. They're just getting unveiled. I think we can hold that sentiment right now after this election of, of 2020 to say, things aren't getting worse. Though in some ways it, feel, it might feel that way, they're just getting more and more unveiled. Which means to me, what I think is true then what is true for me and I hope for us in this moment is that that vision we have as a faith community, that vision of building beloved community, of uprooting white supremacy culture and truly building a community, a faith community and a world, a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-racial world where we are seen and known and welcome as we are. That vision is more important than ever as we honestly confront the work yet to do as we take stock of that with more awareness of what we haven't seen. And when I say we, I mean some of the white folks haven't seen or known or believed before. So neither despair, that kind of folding in position or collapse, when we look at the work in front of us is an appropriate response, nor is blind hope and optimism and excitement, a sense that everything will work out, a sense that someone will swoop in and take care of this for us, that will, will course correct for us, will take us to this promised land of beloved community. Neither of those postures are the right postures, though we will feel those postures for sure. I have this week. Only this middle posture right here, anchored in reality, anchored in the world, anchored in seeing what is in front of us and unearthing the history we have failed to understand and see only that posture, that middle posture between the collapse and between the kind of reaching for the heavens. And we need both of those, those will be there, but that middle posture, truly seeing and owning the history of this country reckoning with that history can help us move forward and build beloved community. I keep thinking about Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again. This poem is a lament and a reckoning and a vision of what these United States of America might be as the country strives to fulfill its fundamental promise of life 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for every human being. Langston Hughes ends his poem with these lines. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, out of the rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. These are powerful words from a black man who did not benefit from the United States in the same ways that so many white people did. But in that poem, there's a clear-eyed vision of what is possible, a generous embrace of what we the people might yet do together. Friends, what I know to be true in this moment is that there is no normal to go back to. There never was. We cannot make America great again because we must remake America again and again and again. This means we can't remain as we are, as we strive to build this America, as we strive to build beloved community. This means letting ourselves be transformed from squirrels into bats or transformed in other remarkable and perhaps painful ways as Amy pointed to in that story she shared. To remake America means for many of us that we must remake ourselves, refashion our understanding of this country, refashion our relationships, examine again what we think we know as true, and then look even deeper. And we hold, as we do that then, we begin to hold the multiple truths and histories and realities of this country. And as we do this work, let us remember our ancestors, spiritual and otherwise, who are with us now, with all of their limitations and failings and courage, but ancestors who lived and struggled and fought so that we could be here today. The way forward may seem impossible, beloved community, a distant dream, but that cannot stop us. At the end of Michael Eric Dyson's book, Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. He quotes the great black prophet and mystic Howard Thurman, who says this, at the time when the slaves in America were without any excuse for hope and they could see nothing before them but the long interminable cotton rows and the fierce sun and the lash of the overseer, what did they do? They declared that God was not through. They said, we cannot be prisoners of this event. We must not scale down the horizon of our hopes and our dreams and yearnings to the level of the event of our lives. So they lived through their tragic moment until at last they came out on the other side, saluting the fulfillment of their hopes and their faith. Words from Howard Thurman. Michael Eric Dyson remarks in his closing reflections of this short book, beloved, and that's how he addresses this white audience he's writing to. Beloved, he says, beloved, if the enslaved could nurture on the vine of their desperate deficiency of democracy, 
if they could nurture on that vine the spiritual and moral fruit that fed our civilization, then surely we can name and resist and work to defeat the forces that threaten the soul of our nation. May we be open and willing to do this work. May we be open and willing to be transformed in discomforting and perhaps even painful ways. May we be open and willing to build beloved community, to remake our community and this country again and again and again. May it be so, and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.